Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Running the option on first down. Hagan has it. He has Rome. He's got one man to beat. Now he pitches to Flanagan, and he may take it all the way. Flanagan's in for the touchdown. McKinley Wright from the logo. Got it. Oh, McKinley Wright. Welcome into the DNVR Buffs podcast presented by the uh, American Raptors. I'm Henry Chisholm, and uh, today we're talking some football. Um, had a bunch of fun with the Paradise Jam coverage, but at this point, I mean, I guess they, the basketball team doesn't even play until Sunday, which is two days after the football team closes out the season. Um, so we're going really football heavy this week, um, just kind of to wrap things up. Um, the season isn't over, but I, I think it's partially just because it felt like it was over for so long. You know, you, you get through that Minnesota loss and you're saying, oh no, things really need to turn around. And then you have the back-to-back Pac-12 South games <laughs> against Arizona State and USC. Obviously those don't go well. And all of a sudden you're sitting there in, uh, what would that be? That was probably the first weekend of October. Um, maybe the second weekend of October, just saying, well, that wasn't all that much fun and it doesn't look like there's much they can do to, to make this season worth anything at this point. Um, and that just sucks. It just sucks. And they've just backed into the season in a way that, you know, we've seen with the Broncos, honestly, pretty consistently where they've been below 500 a month into the season. I, I, no, they hadn't won a game in September in three years before this year. And you just get to the end of the month and you say, well, unless something really crazy happens, there's there's nothing good that is going to come of this. Um, from that point, though, things have turned around. I, mean, I, I don't know if turned around is the right word, but, but they've gotten a lot better. There was a time when this team just could not compete. You know, those those three games, Minnesota, Arizona State, USC, 
Those were all 22-point-plus losses. The offense couldn't get anything done. The defense basically was dismantled by the fact they were on the field so much, and I think maybe emotionally or mentally there was some sort of toll that came with knowing what was going to happen if you did get the ball back. Uh, So things probably did look better over the course of these last couple months than I would have expected. Again, that's not really saying all that much. But now you're sitting here at this point where you've won four games, and maybe I'm crazy, but it feels like there's a really big difference between four and eight and five and seven. It's one win, and so it really shouldn't be that big of a deal. Um, But maybe part of it's just because Five and seven is what Colorado does. It that isn't a good thing either, and that that doesn't mean that five and seven now becomes a success. But if you look back at at what's happened at CU, you know you throw last year out because of COVID and the weird things that happened. Before that, five and seven, five and seven, five and seven, a good year. Um, uh, going to the Alamo Bowl, but I believe they're were they five and seven the year before that too. I, I I that might not be true, but it's tough. It's really tough. Still, the way this season played out, you've got a chance to finish five and seven again. As weird as that seems, considering everything else that, that has happened this season, you could turn this into basically what has become kind of the standard in Boulder. And obviously that's something that fans shouldn't find acceptable and nobody should and the coaches should want to fix all that kind of stuff and obviously they do. But I don't know. I don't know how you evaluate something like this. Um, But we're getting close to evaluation time. And the fact that they did pull four wins out, (laughs) you know, a couple months ago, that would have seemed pretty crazy. Um, I don't know. One more week, one more week before they play again on Friday. And I I do feel like this is a pretty big game for a couple of reasons. Um, The the big one, like I mentioned, is just four and eight versus five and seven feels like a really big difference. Now, for those of us who have lived through this, we know that it doesn't feel like those other five and seven seasons because I'm pretty sure this is the first time that Colorado's had a game that that didn't matter in terms of bowl eligibility in three, four years. I think even going back to, I mean, I guess technically the rise season 2016 when you, you get past, past that six win mark, those games you've already got it clinched. But since then, they've never been dead. They've struggled in getting that last win against Utah at the end of the year and never crossing the hump and getting to six wins. So for that reason, it does play out differently just because you're not competitive. It's the same thing with those Broncos teams where, sure, you look at the record and you're like, ah, I mean, it's not it's not the end of the world, but they never gave themselves a shot. And this football team didn't give itself a shot either. And, you know, you, you play the video game, and you run through, and you're like, oh, that didn't go well. You just get to start fresh. With this football team in the real world, you've got to live through two months like they just did of pe- playing this sort of football, knowing that the, the end of the season has basically come in terms of 
anything that feels like it matters. You know, the reasons that you that you play the game, the, the goals that you have heading into the year. And then you've got this long off season. Last year, let's use this as an example. You have a great regular season. You go four and one. Um, again, you you dodge some of the tough teams, but it doesn't really matter. The, the opponents that you played, you beat them other than that one game. Then you go to the Alamo Bowl and you don't just lose to Texas. Texas kind of shows Colorado what's up. You know, it says like you, yes, you're four and one. You are not a team that can compete with what we have at Texas right now. And it's not like that's a great Texas team. You know, it's not probably in the top 30, top 50 teams they've ever played at Texas. And that left a stain on that season that lasted through the entire offseason. You know, I remember, and we've talked about it a bunch, but Carl Durrell, we talked to him a month later, and you can tell that he's still just in his head about it. He's been thinking about it a lot. It's kind of eating him alive, and he knows that there's a lot of work to be done. This could kind of be the reverse of that. Now, obviously, it's a big ask to beat Utah. They're a 23.5-point favorite, but that is why it's this opportunity. Why, if you go out there and pull off an upset and close things out in that way, all of a sudden you're sitting on a 5-7 and seven season and you've beaten a team that just beat a top-four team in the country. And this Utah team, we'll, we'll dig in later in the week. We haven't done a good job of that in the last couple of weeks. Um, but this one, we're, we're going to really hammer this last game because it's weird that it's on Friday. That throws me off. Friday at 2 o'clock. But the point is, with this Utah team, they're big and they're physical. I mean, you guys have watched Colorado play Utah before. It is the exact same team as every other time. Um, they struggled early in the year. They, I mean, you, you look through these results, and you, it, I feel like it's pretty easy to just explain most of them. And you come away thinking, yeah, I mean, it... Has anything really changed? Because I came into this season not thinking that Utah was all that good. I thought that they were probably a little bit overrated. To be fair, I've thought that for three years in a row. And I've said, you know, this is probably the second best team in the Pac-12. Maybe the third best team. But it's not a team that you think just has the juice. I mean, in the Pac-12 South. It's not a team that seems like it has the juice to win the Pac-12 South when you look around at Arizona State and USC and some of these other programs. And then everybody else just kind of falls apart and tears themselves down and blows bad games. And Utah's standing there at the end, just like they are again this year. I, I don't know. Let's see. Do they actually have a trip to the Rose Bowl locked up? Yeah, they do. So, or not to the Rose Bowl, sorry, to the Pac 12 title game. And the winner will go to the Rose Bowl because Oregon is essentially eliminated from the playoff at this point. So, I just want to run through these. They start the season. You beat Weber State. That's whatever. That's Weber State is not what it used to be. They they actually missed out on the FCS playoffs, which surprised me a little bit. But then the next week, they lose to BYU. And then they lose in triple overtime to San Diego State. Again, we saw what Colorado did to San Diego State last year. I think what? That more than half. Exactly exactly half of their plays, or maybe it was one more than half of their plays, went for zero yards or negative yards. 
And this defense is basically the same. You took out Akeel Jones and replaced him with Quinn Perry. That's the difference. Um, I guess what? Darian Rakestraw has been replaced by Mark Perry, who has been playing really well recently, which is an exciting development. Um, that I may have overstated it just a little bit. He's he He's somebody who, if he's starting, you're like, oh, okay, this is cool. He isn't necessarily like a stud on the defense, but he's making some plays. Um, well, we can dig into that some other day. Um, but yeah, they, they lose to San Diego State. They beat Washington State by 11. And then their quarterback transfers. The guy who was supposed to be... He was the guy that CU fans and everybody was really jealous of because he put up huge numbers at Baylor. He was going to come in and be the final piece of this. And then he, then he leaves because things aren't going well. And you just think, well, that's kind of it on the season. And they go and beat USC. But again, this USC team, that's the sixth week of college football. They were going through all sorts of stuff. I think that was right before they fired Clay Helton. That was just the most toxic time. And it wound up being 42-26. to And what did Utah do? They just lined up and ran the ball on them, right? Yeah, 113 yards for their leading rusher right there. 7.1 yards per carry. They also threw the ball on them. But again, this USC team, that defense is just so weak. You look at that, and it's not all that intimidating. Then they go beat Arizona State. Arizona State is the same thing. It's just they, a team like Utah can go out there and just bully them. They can line up, block everybody in front of them, and, and pick up whatever they need to pick up. And then they, they lose to Oregon State. Again, this is a good Oregon State team, but Colorado beat them. That was 42-34 to 34 that they won, so a one-score game. Um, UCLA, again, they're bigger in the trenches. It's 160 rushing yards, 6.7 yards per carry, four touchdowns for the running back. They beat up Stanford real good, 52-7, but again, it's the same thing. They beat Utah by nine, and then last week they beat Oregon, which is a big one, but... I don't know. It seems like all these things can be explained away. And maybe that's just playing Pac-12 football is you look at every team that one of the teams beats and say, like, oh, no, I mean, it's not that impressive. And, and that's just true of every Pac-12 team. But but at the end of the day, I don't think that this is an unwinnable game. At the same time, if you're, I'll, I'll come up with a score prediction later in the week and it's going to be something like... <sighs> 42 to to 10, 42 14, probably somewhere right around there will be the prediction. Again, I don't think that they necessarily do like they're not doomed. They don't have no chance. But th- again, this is the situation that makes this game potentially one that could change how you feel about this team going into the offseason. And the fact that they do have the Pac-12 South locked up already I, it's college football, and so every game does matter. That's just the way it always works because it's all about the rankings. And it's even about style points on top of whether you win or lose. But, I mean, you'd, if you're Colorado, you'd rather have them already locked up than not already have it locked up because then you're catching a pretty fired-up team, I guess, trying to go to the Pac-12 title game. Um, and maybe this is me being even too optimistic. I don't think so, though. It's not like this Utah team is perfect. Again, you look at those losses, say, like, Colorado has beaten 
two of those three teams in the last 12 months. So, why not? Why why can't it happen? Um, Colorado is also... You got you guys know what else Colorado's done in the last twelve months, and it hasn't all been good. Um, actually, very little of it. But this is a big week, I think, because you just look at all of this and say, you know, four and eight, five and seven. There's a big difference. This Utah team to get a good win under your belt against them makes the off season feel so much better. You know, you've seen some good things from this offense. You've seen some games where they really look good. This week was not one of them. They struggled against Washington, and the defense bailed them out. But, you know, if you can go into the offseason saying, well, three of the last five games, they were they were kind of clicking. Feels a lot better than two of the last five, that's for sure. And with the defense, you know, obviously this is Nate Landman's last game. You know he's going to get fired up. And who knows if he actually plays. I, I actually don't know. I know that... The fact that he went through warm-ups last week is a good sign. The fact that he was trying to play a few weeks ago and the coaches let, wouldn't let him, that's another good sign. Um, we'll get to game day and see what happens. It would probably be smart on his part to not play. We also all know Nate and how he thinks. And if I had to guess, I'd guess that they probably let him play. Um, I don't know. We'll see. But with everything that's gone on this season, boy, would it be nice to to close it out with something to get excited about. Because, I, I mean, Colorado fans are not happy right now. And, I, again, you guys probably know that. You guys are on Twitter and the message boards and at the stadium hearing what people have to say and all that stuff. But, I mean, I obviously spend a lot of time talking to Colorado fans, and everybody's upset. And it's, I mean, you can't really blame them. Again, who who is the cause of all of this? I think that's really up for debate. Um, and these are better conversations for the offseason. But, again, it feels like we're pretty much here at this point. So we might as well start digging in and we can put some more thought into it over the next few months. But here's here's why I'm not as low on Carl Durell as some others are. And this is something like at the tailgate, you know, I was talking to some CU fans about this stuff. Again, I just, it's interesting. It's interesting for sure. And okay, here's one. People I've heard and I've talked to people who said they want to see Carl Durrell get fired, um, that that the they want to see him get bought out, um, all that kind of stuff. And first of all, I should say I get it. Obviously, this has been a really disappointing season. And I mean, w- let me pull up where where is this offense ranked because it is not in a good place. But I haven't checked for a couple weeks, so it might not be dead last anymore. Um, we'll we'll check on that. But the idea that it was a bad contract because his buyout is $12 million. That's just what happens on coaches' contracts two years in. And it's... You just don't see contracts that have smaller buyouts than that this early. Next year it goes down. I'm actually not sure what it goes down to. The year after that it goes down even more. It might even expire. I can't remember how long the deal is. He hasn't... It's a couple of years ago we signed it. Um, but first of all, that little misconception, 
I'll, I'll say that's a pretty standard number for a coach's contract. Um, also, if you were to move on from Carl at this point, you would really be hurting yourself in the next coaching search. Um, I think that it's worth remembering that at this point, Colorado's head coaching job is not looked at like USC or Alabama or any of those big names. You're not necessarily just going to get the top candidate just because you're, you're Colorado. You know, you don't get first pick at this point because of what's happened over the course of the last 20 years or so. And when that's the case, you really have to think about how do you improve your odds of hiring a good head coach or convincing a good head coach that Boulder is the right place to be. Treating your head coaches well is is a piece of that. And again, last year it's a weird year, but still Carl Durrell comes in and goes 4-1 and one despite not having any spring camp without having any chance to work with any of the guys and then getting into the four-week was no, it wound up being a six-week buildup. Still a crazy short buildup um, instead of the typical like off-season workouts and then fall camp and all that stuff. He probably had 25% of the time with his team, even less than that, I'd guess. Probably maybe even under 20% um, of the time that you typically get with a team ramping up for a season. And still went four and one. Again, dodged some some teams, but to to have to move Sam Neuer to quarterback, all the things that were going on, and to find success doing that, and that's why he won the Coach of the Year award. And it, it's not like you can just throw that out the window just because it was COVID. You know, it it really was great work by that coaching staff to get what they could out of that season. Now. When you have a coach who has been around for two seasons and one of them he wins coach of the year, and even if you only give him like half credit for that and you do discount it because of the COVID, it's all of that stuff, which I understand, then a new coach looks at that and says, This is Colorado. Like, look at what has happened over the course of the last 20 years. Look at how hard it's been to sustain success in the last 10 years in particular. And you think that you can give a coach two seasons or I mean, you could kind of look at it as like a season and a half or even less than that because of the the things that happened in 2020. If you're if you're a coach who's interviewing for this job, you say you you really think that with everything that is going on, all that stuff, that he should have been able to do this. And that's just not a situation that a coach is going to want to throw himself into. And that doesn't mean that everybody says no, but it does hurt that case at least a, a little bit. And some of that is why when Carl Durrell, you know, his strength is building his staff. Um, that That's at least my belief, and that's something that I've said since he was hired just because he has so many connections because he's worked with so many guys um and you know you see it in the recruiting when he's bringing in josh mccown's son because josh mccown really respected him in the time i think they played on a couple of different teams together you have those relationships and that means that you know when brian dable the offensive coordinator with the bills is you know you when you're looking for uh, an offensive line coach, you can be like, hey, any any ideas? You can call around to those guys. And 
even more importantly, when you call around to them and say, hey, we're interested, would you like to interview for this job? Then they go back to those coaches and say, hey, is this somebody I should work for? And they say, you you should consider it, Wh- whatever. So having having those connections is so valuable. It should be his biggest strength as a coach, I still think. And And that's why when you have a situation like the Mitch Rodriguez situation where things are obviously not going well, but you rarely see position coaches get fired during the season. You wait until, I mean, when, when did he make that decision? I actually can't even remember the date. Is that, that You could tell me that was three weeks ago. Oh, it was before the Oregon game. That's right. It was definitely before the Oregon game because um, then they played really well in that one. So that was one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, seven games into the season. And so when you're making one of those changes, other coaches are going to look at it and say, hey, he didn't give him a fair shake, whatever. Now, if the new guy comes in and fixes everything, which is what happened, it's a lot easier to justify that decision. But those are the kind of tensions that that build behind the scenes that you have to think about on so many different levels when you're building the staff. Now, at the same time, you definitely shouldn't have hired Mitch Rodriguez in the first place. I think that that... I think that's Carl's probably biggest mistake so far, right? Was hiring Mitch Rodriguez. Um, Mostly because I think from an outsider's perspective, people, I mean, people didn't like the hire. It wasn't a hire where everybody's like, oh, that's a slam dunk. This guy's going to be great. Carl kind of went off the beaten path a bit and it didn't work out. And the fact that everybody else can say, we, well, duh, this is what, that's what makes it even worse. Again, you have to remember the circumstances, though. And it doesn't mean you give him a pass for hiring Mitch Rodriguez. You can't do that. But you can say he was building his staff three months after everybody else had built their staff. And when you're building your staff three months after everybody else, you're not left with the best options in the world. In particular, how many good offensive line coaches are there? How many good offensive lines are there? How often do you watch college football and say, ooh, that's a good group? That's one of those positions. Just like in the NFL, it's hard to find good linemen. Same thing is true in college. And I do think there's a case we made. That's a pretty tough job to fill. You got to do better than Mitch Rodriguez, though. You do need to do better than Mitch Rodriguez. Um, so, again, there's just so many factors at play. And, was, you know, I've said before, you know, Darren Cheverini, that's that's the other guy who's really struggled. And I did pull up these offensive stats um, Colorado is now third from last in all of FBS football in terms of total offense per game. They're sitting there with uh, 267 and a half yards. Uh, you've got Southern Miss at 250. You've got the New Mexico Lobos bringing up the back with uh, 237. And again, we've been pretty tough on Darren Cheverini on this podcast. It's pretty obvious why. You know, there's there's a thing that happens to offenses or to coaches who just wind up at the bottom of the group. You know, when you see, I don't know, let's just say in the, in the bottom 10 in terms of total offensive production, how many of those guys or how many of those offensive coordinators are going to get fired? Probably just about all of them. That's just the way it works. When you underperform, it's not going to 
bad things are going to happen. You know, that's it's just the nature of this business, and that's why he probably is gone. At the same time, I think that there was I think that there was pressure to keep Darren Cheverini around um because he he has a history of recruiting well. He does well with the boosters. You know, he's he's good at bringing in donations because they think of the glory days. You know, Nate Landman won the Buffalo Heart Award again this year. It goes, they've only given it out to a senior. This is a tangent. Let's go down the tangent. Why not? I actually hadn't looked into the history of the Buffalo Heart Award before. Like, I'd heard about it. I Obviously, I'd heard about it, duh. But, like, people told me what it was about. Um, I didn't realize there was just, like, a group of four people that sit behind the Buffs bench. You know, you hear, oh, it's voted on by the fans. It's like, oh, yeah, fan vote thing. Those things exist. They're around. I know how those work. No, this is very different. Like, those those four fans who sat behind the bench for at least 20 years give out an award because they kind of have a firsthand look, and they say it's like who has heart, determination, grit, one other thing, maybe toughness, something like that. Um, But, but they decide who they want to give it to. And the first one ever, and potentially the reason they even started giving out the award, was Darren Cheverini in 1998. And so there is absolutely pressure to keep him around, as as there probably should have been. Now, offensive coordinator, I don't know. I mean, that's that's where he was at in his career, right? Was getting a shot to be an offensive coordinator. You look at the things that he's done, the background, all that, it just made sense. And, you know, he'd had success recruiting. Um, Whatever. The point is, I do think that there was pressure on Carl to keep him around, likely in that role. And in Darren Cheverini's defense, which is not something, maybe, maybe not something we've done enough on this podcast, but in Darren Cheverini's defense, you know, he was at Texas Tech before. Remember that? He was at Texas Tech with Patrick Mahomes. He left before Patrick Mahomes' senior year. Um, and if he were to call the same offense, you know, he builds the same playbook. He, he calls the games the same way. The play calling is the same, all that stuff. But he does it all with that Texas Tech team with Patrick Mahomes and with all them. You know, they're probably middle of the pack, right? Maybe a little bit below middle of the pack, but they're probably right around the middle of the pack. And it's just tough that when you are Darren Cheverini and you're given, first of all, for the first half of the season, a really bad offensive line and a line that struggled again this week. You know, it's it's not like it's been perfect starting with the Oregon game. They had a couple of really good games for sure, but there's been plenty of mistakes. Um, but if you're Darren Cheverini, you're given that offensive line, you're given a, a fresh and quarterback, um, you've you've got really young receivers. Demetri Stanley misses a stretch. Uh, Levante Chenault is just absent for almost the entire season. We'll we'll talk about him more later on too because he's gone. Um, but but you know all the things that were happening, combine that with the fact that Darren Cheverini hasn't done a very good job of play calling in my opinion, and I think in the general public's opinion as well, it, it's going to. That's that's how you wind up third from the bottom. Now, if if you're Darren Cheverini and you know whatever your play calling is a D plus or a C minus or whatever grade you want to give, um, but you've got 
Patrick Mahomes and a decent offensive line and whatever else, you're still going to find a way to have success. And so, I don't know. It's just a thought I had when I was driving back from that Washington game. And that's what this podcast is, right? (laughs) Me rambling about things. I don't know. I don't know what the point of all this is. I think, I guess maybe the point is it isn't as bad as it seems. It's definitely not good. You're definitely not two years away from a national championship appearance. But I don't necessarily think that it's as bad as it seems. Um, What else? Oh, recruiting. Let's throw recruiting out there. Um, I'll say this. You you need five stars and four stars to compete for national titles. And for I mean you gotta have at least some of that talent to compete for Pac twelve titles too. That's just the way it works. Because we've talked about this before, but a lot of how those grades get given out is just based on size and speed and all of that sort of stuff. And at some point at the end of the day, you do need to be big and strong and fast to win football games. It's the nature of the game. I'll also say that there are major flaws in the way that recruits are graded. And this is something we've talked about with Matt McChesney before, and we're going to have him on hopefully in the next couple days here. Um, but they they only grade what they see. And what they see is typically, you know, we, Matt McChesney, he said on the podcast, he sends in all the film to the graders and they grade his players. They rate his players. Where I come from up in Montana, there is nobody sending that tape in. Nobody's getting looked at, whatever. And for the most part, that's fine because you're not going to miss too many players. But every year there's going to be two or three who go to Montana or Montana State and rare, rarely do you see somebody from Montana leave the state and they turn out to be one of the top FCS players. You know, Troy Anderson, uh, he's a linebacker who's played quarterback. He's played running back. He's just a freak for Montana State. And he was like my my high school's rival. Um, he was at Dillon High School. Without getting too far in the weeds, I didn't like him then. I definitely didn't like him when he was at Montana State and I was at Montana. But he's just that crazy blend of size and speed, whatever. He would be uh, an all-conference linebacker in the Pac-12. He is that good. But you don't ever see him. He never got rated. Nobody cared because he was in Montana. Nobody looked, which I'm not going to blame him for. Like, it would not be a good use of time to recruit Montana. The point is, you want to be able to find the gems and not just see, oh, look, four-star, go get this guy. And so far, the guys that Carl Durrell has brought in They've been good. They've they've honestly been really good. Like, this is a freshman class that I've been pretty impressed with. I mean, Kalen Moore is the eighth highest rated defender, according to Pro Football Focus, on the entire team as a true freshman. And you look at the contributions they've gotten from this recruiting class, which, what, it was 10th in the Pac-12 and whatever, but Chase Penry's made some plays. Trevor Woods took the job from Isaiah Lewis at safety. Uh, Ty Robinson has been out there making some plays as well. Uh, we talked about Kalen Moore. Uh, Tyron Taylor's been out there a lot. Nico Reed, I know they're excited about. Obviously, Cole Becker, well, 
he had a rough start. But 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 I think we all think he's going to be a really good kicker. And that's for what was supposed to be a really bad recruiting class. Just something to keep in mind when you see the numbers say what the numbers say and to see that Colorado was the first to offer somebody. First to offer, no other FBS offers, whatever, doesn't automatically mean bad thing. And just because the recruiting services say it's a bad class doesn't mean it's a bad class. It, it means that there's a decent chance it's a bad class if it says it's a bad class. But the point is, it's going to take three years to grade recruiting. Otherwise, you're just jumping to conclusions. It's like going to the NFL draft and giving out draft grades the same night. It's insane. It's based on the value that is perceived before the draft. What matters is what you can do with these players. And... Again, that's not saying they're all, it's going to work out, but to say that the recruiting will not work out, it's just too soon for that because we've gotten one class onto this campus and it's honestly been a pretty good class for freshmen. I don't know. I also have a tendency to take things... I'm more optimistic, I think, than most, but I just feel like why not take a day and talk about how it's not all that bad and how you can see a future now what does that look like next year it's tough to see and there's going to be a lot of work to do over this offseason um i've said it before and i'll say it again right now you know you if if you're carl durell you want to see probably at least 10 15 transfers right like you're you're probably trying to push guys out now again you, typically when you see oh, this many players transferred from Colorado. You think, oh, that's a bad thing. But is this a team that you look at and say, Let, we, let's, let's hold all this together. Let's not go to the portal at all. No, of course not. And obviously, if, if everything was perfectly healthy and, and you're winning 10 games a year, whatever else, you probably don't see nearly as many transfers. And at some point, you want to get to that point. But at this point, you gotta you gotta see some turnover, right? You know, I was talking about this in our Discord. You should subscribe if if you haven't yet, because you get access to this. But um, you know, just I threw this out there after we heard that Levante Chenault transferred. Your depth chart at receiver right now, in my opinion, is number one, Brendan Rice. Number two, Dimitri Stanley. Number three, Montana Lamonius Craig. Number four. Daniel Arias, number five, Ty Robinson, number six, Chase Penry, number seven, Maurice Bell, number eight, Jalen Jackson, number nine, Chris Carpenter, who had a nice catch on Saturday, number 10, Keith Miller, who has not dressed whatever, but had some talent, we're excited about him. How many of those guys do you want to see transfer? I think it'd probably be pretty healthy to see three of those guys leave. You're left with the other seven. Plus, I don't know, I haven't even, I'm, you know I'm not the recruiting guy. Let me just click 2022, who do they have signed up? Um, oh, they actually, oh, they have one receiver committed in this year's class. But again, it makes sense when you see all that. And you'd almost not really mind saying, hey, this this group for the next two years, it's set. We're stacked. And there's a chance that it's stacked even longer than that, depending on how long Brendan Rice sticks around. Um Montana Lamonius Craig, Ty Robinson, Chase Penry, and they've all got three years of eligibility left. That's a decent core. I mean, 
you probably want to to see a couple of these guys leave just to open up scholarships to say like let's take two more flyers on offensive linemen or see what we can do about linebacker and that's just the receivers you know you look at the running backs and you could say something similar so while transfers are i don't know just like anything else in the world nothing's good nothing's bad it's all just kind of complicated but you do want to see some turnover and you want to see the coaching staff take some shots. Hey, here's the other. This might actually be my biggest critique of this coaching staff so far. Their work in the transfer portal last year was not good. And the, when you look at the way this team is constructed right now, I th- I think that it's a team that you you recognize that you need to be good in the transfer portal. You know, you you bring in Robert Barnes. He hasn't been bad. He had his best game of the season on Saturday. But it's still... I mean, where does he rank on here? I wonder what Pro Football Focus says. I hate using these. He's 26 out of 39 players who've seen the field defensively. And again, he, he has one year of eligibility left. And for a veteran, you expect better. Pro Football Focus didn't like this game as much, which is surprising. They have it as his fifth best, sixth best, seventh. But, you know, regardless, he hasn't been as great as you'd expect. You know, he gave up 26 catches on 32 targets so far this season. He's your cover linebacker. And he's also made some plays, and that's oversimplifying and that kind of stuff. But the way that he was hyped up before the season – he, he hasn't been that guy. He's been a replacement-level player. And there's there's one of your six transfers you bring in. Um, you bring in Noah Fenske. Haven't seen him play yet. He's got a couple years of eligibility left. Um, but, again, just haven't seen him play yet. Can't call that one a win. Max Ray, obviously a, a pretty major disappointment coming over from Ohio State. Simple as that. That's... I think safe to say a miss. Uh, Blaine Toll from Arkansas, he has already transferred back out. Um, that's a obvious miss. Jack Lamb, he he made a big play, um, and and he's another one who has a couple, a few years of eligibility left. Two years, two years left, I think. So again, he's maybe more of a project, of a piece for the future than some of the others, um, but. Again, it's not like you look at Jack Lamb and say, oh, what a major success. I mean, if he doesn't make that play, you don't win the game. And I don't know if there's another linebacker on the roster fast enough to outrun that entire defense. Um, but still, it's not a resounding success there. And then JT Shroud, who who knows because he didn't play. And you kind of have to leave it at that. But with the transfer portal around and with Colorado kind of bringing up the rear in terms of the Pac-12 at this point, in terms of, I mean, maybe even Power 5 conferences, you probably have them in the bottom five. Maybe it's it's tougher since they've gotten better. It would have been really easy to say that a month ago. At this point, it's like, eh, I don't know. Potentially. Prob- probably. Probably. If there was just like a big round robin, everybody played everybody, they wind up down there. Eh, p- prob- probably. But... You gotta. Somebody is going to be really successful in the portal, and whoever it is is going to 
make a name for his program by doing that. And if that's Carl Durrell, if he's the coach who figures out the, the best way to use the portal, that would be great. Especially considering how this team is, is built right now and, and the needs that they have and the lack of depth that they still have, I think. I think it's definitely better than where it was, but still not where it needs to be. I don't know. These these are just a bunch of rambling thoughts at this point. Um, but they've all been kind of backed up, so it's nice to get them all out. I don't know. It's, in my opinion, it's too early to say is Carl Durrell a good head coach or not. It's, I you definitely don't say, wow, he's the next Nick Saban. I don't know. Where does he stand at this point? Because, again, like, in terms of the roster building, the recruiting last year, pretty average, just based on what you've seen. Maybe a little bit below average, probably a little below average, um, based on freshmen. So it's essentially meaningless. Um, but from there, you look at the coaching staff and say, Darren Cheverini likely didn't have too much say there especially that late in the process. And that's something that, again, will probably change. And I think who he hires as offensive coordinator, assuming there is a change, or whether he keeps Cheverini, whoever is the offensive coordinator next season, that is going to be a huge piece of the puzzle with Carl. Because this is something he needs to get right. Um, whether that, it, he could think, he could make an argument that Darren Cheverini is the right guy. And it's all these other things that were going wrong. I obviously disagree but he gets to think of things however he wants to think of things. He gets to choose who he wants to put in that position. And if that guy succeeds, that will turn things around pretty quickly, honestly. And if he doesn't succeed, then that's when Carl is really on the hot seat. And so that's going to be a huge hiring. Um, who he picks for offensive line coach, not the biggest, as long as... As long as you don't hire a Mitch Rodriguez that I mean somebody who's just obviously doesn't belong. Um but could choose to keep Vallejos, could look elsewhere, who knows? Um in terms of the rest of the staff, what? Darian Hagan will be the running backs coach for as long as he wants to be. He's good at it. He's obviously has the Cheverini thing with the boosters. He's set. A quarterback's coach, you know, Danny Langsdorf. I think that'll be a conversation. Because there's there's a bunch of different ways you could look at it. First of all, you look at the experience and say you've been a play caller at multiple Power Five schools. You're obviously very established. You've been around. You know, if if you if you ditch Danny Langsdorf and add somebody else, there's a chance you bring in a Mitch Rodriguez, right? And that's that's where that experience helps. Where you can at least say, hey, you're a replacement level coach, whatever. Um, we have a baseline that we're comfortable with. But then from there, when you just look at what he's done at Colorado, it's a it's a complicated conversation, for sure. Um, we, we'll leave 2020 out of it, Sam Neuer out of it. Maybe we get back to that in a second. But you look at just this season and say, well, first of all, how have the quarterbacks performed? And the answer is not good. You need more out of the quarterback position than you got this season if you want to make a bowl game, potentially like if you even just want to win five games, but you need more out of that position, and that's not a good look for a coach. At the same time, 
Brendan Lewis does look like he's gotten quite a bit better from where he was, you know, Texas A&M, Minnesota, that stretch until now. And he's had a couple of games where you say, hey, he's he's actually a pretty average Pac-12 quarterback, which isn't what you shoot for. But when you remember he's a freshman and he's got three more years of eligibility and all that kind of stuff, it's easier to say, okay, well, he's he's the sixth best quarterback right now. Who knows? Maybe he grows into number one. Um, and when you factor in where he was at the beginning, there you go. And he isn't the sixth best quarterback right now. He's had games where he's been that way. Right now he's probably like nine, ten, just off the top of my head. But I don't know. And again, that's a that's something that Carl, I'm sure, will think through, just like he'll think through everything else. And he gets to make the decision. Do you look at it and say the quarterbacks weren't good enough? Or do you look at it and say the quarterback got quite a bit better significantly? And I, I don't know. I don't know. Um, you know, the the other position coaches, I guess the receivers, if if you make the assumption Darren Cheverini's gone, obviously I think when you look at the entire coaching staff, he's who's most likely to be gone. And it's very likely that Colorado makes at least a change or two considering what happened this season. Um, that is likely open. Um Offensive line, we talked about running backs. Oh, tight ends. Eh, you probably want more out of them. That's true with basically the entire offense. I don't know. I guess, is it is it a knock that we haven't seen anything from Caleb Fourier or Eric Olsen yet? Because those are some talented guys. Um, you expect tight ends to take some time to develop just because they need to get bigger and stronger to be able to compete in there, especially those two guys who were both a little bit skinny coming in. Um, I don't know. Carl knows more about that than we do, but he, yeah, we don't need to get into Taylor Embry, but that's what you want is you want to get guys who come in and you're getting them to, to their next job. It's an even better job and you keep them moving up the, the coaching train and who knows, maybe if Embry had stuck around for another year, his name would be in the offensive coordinator conversation this year. Or who knows? Maybe you even see a change in the middle of the season because Carl has somebody he wants to promote. Um, it's just filling up the coaching staff with talent and moving them on. You know, that's what happened with Chris Wilson. Chris Wilson, I, I think Tyson Summers would have continued to be the defensive coordinator for this team if Chris Wilson wasn't just sitting there available to, to be that guy. And who knows, maybe if Embry's around, he is. But that's what you want, is those young guys who can work their way through. Or, you know, we've talked to Carl about this, but a blend of experience and a blend of youth. And, you know, who's who's most likely to get promoted on the offensive side? It's not Dan... I, I, I mean, nobody this season. And promoted, I don't even mean necessarily within the, the CU, but to get a better job somewhere. Obviously this season, probably nobody. But if we're talking about like going forward, um, not necessarily this offseason, then it probably is Danny Langsdorf. Because if he can take Brendan Lewis to another level next year, then I think somebody does say, hey, you've developed this guy to this point. We want you developing our quarterbacks. And we recognize that you're not going to leave to be a quarterback's coach somewhere else unless it's like, Bama or somewhere with the really big money. Um, so we'll give you an offensive coordinator job. Now, you're obviously projecting and saying things go well with Brendan, which is 
a bold prediction. You know, it's not impossible. It's not the most likely thing. But it's one way that things could go. Or who knows? But just looking at that staff, he'd be my guess. Or maybe Vallejos. That offensive line really is good next year. He's so young. But, yeah, d- the defensive side, what do you do? Um, you know, Chris Wilson, I think you you like what you've seen. I think that there was probably more that you could get out of this group at the same time. We know the circumstances. When you're on the field as much as that group was on the field, when you know that the offense isn't supporting you, like was the case for the first few weeks, I I mean, I don't look at Chris Wilson and say he's somebody who some team is going to poach to be their next head coach. I think maybe we, after that Texas A&M game, we were saying that. But the things obviously took a turn from there. I think he's absolutely deserving of being the defensive coordinator going forward. Um, but he he needs a good year if he's going to make, take or take that step at some point. Um, you move back to, or to the outside linebackers. Uh, so Brian Michalowski, you know, Carson Wells, he, he didn't do what he did last year. At the same time, Brian Michalowski was the guy who turned him into what he was a few years ago, into what he's been the last couple of years. And Carson deserves credit for that as well. Um, and I don't think you, just because the production this year wasn't what it was before, but he did kind of get him to that point. I'll say that's just kind of a neutral. I think you look at what Guy Thomas has done and said that's a plus. And you look at Jabbar Montgomery, Josh Gustav, and say, eh, maybe a slight negative just because you haven't got much out of them. But, I mean, the fact that you're able to get multiple guys worth rotating in. I mean, to Brian Michalowski's credit, that's one of the few units where there really is depth. Now, there's also been a lot of injuries and it got down to the point where we had Devin Grant in there on Saturday, and he made a couple plays. He looked like a young guy and some others. It is what it is. Um, so I think Brian Michalowski, he's somebody who you look at and say things went well for him this season. Um, I don't think anybody's making him their defensive coordinator quite yet. I think he's, you just need more team success or a couple more years of sustained success um, doing – what you're doing as a position coach, but who knows, you know, maybe in a year or two, it's Chris Wilson's turn to be a head coach somewhere because the defense is whatever next year. Um, and then that is when Brian Michalowski gets to be a defense coordinator here. And you like to have those in-house options because this offensive coordinator search is not going to be, it's always nice just to have somebody who you could give that job to, you know, uh, again, just a baseline, just a baseline. A, a way to avoid, again, the Mitch Rodriguez situation. Uh, you look at the inside linebackers with Mark Smith. Um, Nate is Nate. I'm not going to... I think you just got put him to the side in this conversation. Um, Quinn Perry, I think, has really developed into a good two-down linebacker. Um... I think, I don't know, in general, you probably say pretty neutral. Maybe maybe a little below average, but it's just so tough to say when you're not, like, in the meeting rooms, when you don't, uh, like, so, for example, you know, 
this is a tough one. Let's go with Robert Barnes. You know, Robert Barnes, somebody who everybody's excited about but hasn't lived up to the hype. You know, he hasn't been one of the best players on this defense like we'd expected. You know, he he was on Saturday, but just not consistently throughout the season. Um, How much of that is because he's being put in the wrong situations? How much of that is just, you know, you you didn't develop him like you needed to, whatever. Um, And... If you're Carl Durrell, you've been there every day and you've seen the work and you've seen whatever. Mark say things three times and it just doesn't get through. Well, whatever. Or you say not say those things. From the outside, I think you probably say overall the linebackers have been, or the inside linebackers aside from Nate, have been just below expectations because you expected one of those guys to be a good a decent linebacker, um, whether it was Mr. Williams or Marvin Ham or Quinn Perry or John Van Deest. And Quinn Perry has turned out to be that decent guy. And so that's kind of what you expected. Probably didn't maximize Robert Barnes or you misevaluated or, or something because um, he's not just a stud. He's Again, he's good. He's fine. He's solid. But he's not... I mean, they... Uh, we've we've had the Robert Barnes talk a couple times on this podcast, um, but yeah, that's. I'd be curious to see what Carl thinks of what's happened at that position. Um, corners. Uh, with uh, Demetrius Martin, I mean Christian Gonzalez has turned into one of the best corners in the Pac-12. Makai Blackman's been locked down when he's been healthy. I think you've got to. I think Demetrius Martin, you're. He he might be one of the biggest risers. You look at Nico Reed and Tyron Taylor and Kalen Moore and the success they've had. Tyron Taylor playing some more safety recently. I I think those corners. Nigel Bethel too. We haven't seen him in so long. It's easy to forget about him, but he, he was another one who was playing really well. Huh. I feel like Demetrius Martin deserves a lot more credit for what he's done. And again, this is me laying on the couch and rambling, but it's it's like midnight because I had a bunch of work to do all day. Um, but yeah, Demetrius Martin deserves more credit. That that maybe that's a good tweet. Maybe I'll tweet that. Demetrius Martin, look at look at these corners. Even with the injuries they've had, they've been really good. I'm not gonna actually do that, but that's. Something that I think is now my belief about this coaching staff. Demetrius Martin may be the biggest riser this season. Um, and then Brett Maxey at safety. You know, that's a tough one. Like I said an, an hour ago. Yeah, like an hour ago. Um, Mark Perry's gotten better. I think, you know, he was given Isaiah Lewis. And Isaiah Lewis, who didn't really factor into the conversation um, before last season and then really made the most of some injuries and became kind of the jack of all trades, could move him around to wherever you want. You know, he turned into a good player. That's under Brett Maxey. And I've got Trevor Woods, who's taking the start from Isaiah Lewis as a freshman. Um, I do think that if you're talking about the strengths of this defense – Oh, this is kind of fun to reevaluate. We haven't done this for like a month, but 
let's let's say everybody's healthy. What are the strengths of this defense? You go. I think corners have to be number one with Christian Zalas and Makai Blackman. Your best player is still Nate, but the combination of Quinn Perry, Robert Barnes, it's it's it just drags Nate down too far to be ahead of those corners. When you think of not just Makai and Christian, but then you've got Nigel Bethel, who was really good when he played. I wish we could have seen him play more. Um, and then all these three freshmen who've gotten in, and they look good too. Um, it's got to be corners one. And then defensive line with Mustafa is a tough one. Um, Mustafa, Terrence, Jalen, maybe lacking some depth. And then outside linebackers is another one you consider here um, with with Carson and Guy Thomas. That's a really good duo. And the fact that you have Joshka and Jamar behind them, again, most of these guys are hurt. But but that's a really good group too. So we got cornerback number one. I'm going to go outside linebacker, inside linebacker, defensive line, and then your safeties. And so how much do you knock Brett Maxey for that? I don't know. I don't know. I wonder, oh, I'm going to Google this guy. So, Atonza Vonger. Atonza Vonger was committed to Colorado over the summer. Transferred from TCU. Um, and he was like four-star. He's one of those like super big, strong, but also fast guys. He, his best game. So, he wound up going to South Alabama instead. Um, looks like he, he played three games and had three total tackles. No other stats registered. So, I don't know. I I wouldn't have been surprised to see that he had just lit up whatever the opponents are, whatever conference South Alabama's in. Sunbelt, something, I don't know. Um, so he did try to add one there. It would have been a miss. It's not necessarily him who brought it in. Um, so I, Brett Maxey's a tough one. I think like, one more time. We'll wrap this up quickly. Mark Perry, I'll give I'll give Brett Maxey a slight, slightly positive grade. I'm tempted to give it a neutral grade um, because you sh- you you expect a little bit of improvement. Um, and I think he has pulled a little bit of that out of, let's call it neutral on Mark Perry, because you expect some growth there. Um, Isaiah Lewis, again, you if if you're talking about the last two years, I think you give Brett Maxey a lot of credit because Isaiah was not supposed to, to really be much of a factor. Um, but he did turn into a factor last year, this year's been disappointing. So if you're just grading on the last year, I think you give him a little bit, a, a slightly below that average um, grade, which brings him down to slightly below overall. But then you've got Trevor Woods, who's out there as a true freshman, taking snaps from Isaiah Lewis. I mean, taking the start from him, even. So, and he looked good. He made a couple plays. He was out of position a couple times, but he's a freshman. Just call it a neutral. We'll call it maybe a slight negative on Brett Maxey. Just because the rest of the defense, I think, grades out pretty well. Um, yeah. I wonder what you guys think. If there's anything that I missed in all this. Um, 
I don't know. I don't even remember how we got onto this topic, but here we are. <laughs> um, should we wrap it up? I guess we should probably wrap it up. But those are just some big thoughts on this coaching staff and Colorado situation. Again, it's just going to be so so much different next year. <laughs> you hope, right? <laughs> you hope it's not just this again. Um, but you, I mean, who's your quarterback? You you don't have uh, uh any guarantee that it's Brendan Lewis. You know, I'm curious what what do you guys do? What do you guys do if if you're Carl Durrell going into this off season just at the quarterback position? You, let's assume no transfers. So you keep Brendan, you keep Drew Carter, you you keep JT Shroud who becomes healthy. You bring in Owen McCown and that that's your squad. Do you go to the transfer portal? Because if you add a portal quarterback, you I mean, first of all, you might scare off Brendan. You might scare off Drew Carter. And I know that a couple months ago, the general consensus was, and I totally agreed with this, if Brendan transfers Eh, who cares? That's fine. Now that we've seen some more out of him, personally, I would be disappointed to see Brendan go. I wouldn't necessarily be disappointed to see him not start next year, which feels like a major contradiction, but I do think that there is a chance that Brendan Lewis turns out to be a really good quarterback. I also think that there's a chance that he's the third best quarterback on the roster next year. Um, And... Who knows? Who knows what's going to happen? But do you risk scaring somebody off by going to the portal? Can you even can, who who can you add from the portal? You know, if you're a quarterback and you're looking through the options across college football, where does Colorado rank? Because obviously the offense struggled. But that means that there's more opportunities. You know, you know that you've got uh, Brady Russell there, you've got Brendan Rice there. You've got Jarek Broussard there. It's a decent little core, um, and you've got a good defense. And you play in the Pac-12. You know, that's been, I guess, maybe not quite as valuable to quarterbacks as you would, as it typically has been. Um, but it's, it's interesting because you look at that job and say it's probably pretty winnable in terms of Power 5 jobs out there. I don't know. I don't know where Colorado ranks. What happens if the Buffs go after Spencer Rattler? I don't know. I don't know. Um, we got <laughs> we started rambling again, um, but it's it's gonna be a big off season, and I it's it's gonna be a really important off season for Carl too, because again the buyout goes down next year as it should, and that's where this all started, but. I don't know. I, what is what is his hot seat? I think he's on the hot seat going on into next year. It's not a crazy hot seat. I think that assuming a loss to Utah on Friday, which is a pretty safe assumption, um, obviously if you go to a bowl game next year, you're safe. I think five wins, you're probably safe. More likely than not, you're safe if you're Carl Durrell. Four wins next year, and I think you're out. But again, it's, some of that stuff depends. Like, I haven't even looked at the schedule. But, you know, if the five wins are, you know, you, you start 0-4, and, 
And then actually that kind of makes it tough because then you actually kind of got hot on the back end and there's something to build around. But you start, let's say you start two and two and four, two and five, and you're basically out of it like you were this year and you kind of back into a couple wins late. Then I think you're probably gone if you're Carl, if that's a five win season. But who knows? Who knows? I don't know. I kind of want to keep talking, but I'm I'm basically out of things that I need to say. But yeah, I I I don't know. If there's one thing you take away from this, it's that like Carl Durrell isn't necessarily a bad coach. There is a good chance that he winds up being basically what people expected. I do think that that that's worth noting. Um, you know, because what he at UCLA famously went to a bowl game every season. That's pretty good. That's I mean, if if you're Colorado, that's a hireable quality. You've never missed a bowl game. This is his first time missing a bowl game. Doesn't help that he's one and four in his career in bowl games, but you know, six and seven, uh, six and five. Uh, wait, let me do this again. Six and seven, six and six, ten and two, seven and six, six and six. I mean. If he goes to Colorado and wins five games every year, you're going to be surprised by that? No. It adds up. At the same time, I do think that there's value in you know being your second time through. Obviously for Carl, like I've said, it's the connections. It's the experience. The ability to add to his staff. Because he he's a weird blend. I think that this is worth noting too. He's, he's a very unique person. Obviously very smart. Very, very smart. Um, doesn't really... Like, he doesn't try to make you think he's smart. Like, he's not arrogant or anything like that. He doesn't think he's the smartest guy in the room. Or at least that's never been what I've thought. And I, I've never heard anybody say that about him. Um, but, but obviously a very smart man. On top of that, I think that there's like a, a weird blend... I do think that he's a micromanager, but I also think that he's very, very hands-off in some regards. And here's where I think that comes from. I think that just comes from having coaching experience. You know, when you've been coaching in the NFL and in college football for what, since 1989? Just crazy. That's 11 years. that's That's 32 years that you've been coaching football at a high level you realize that the best head coaches let their coaches do the coaching. You know, their job is to figure out who they put in what position. And you almost look at them as players. You know, you look at your offensive coordinator almost the same way that you'd look at a quarterback. And I think that's more true in the NFL than it is in college. But you look at it and say, this is the, the guy who builds the offense, and that is his job. And so you let him do that. Um same thing with your receivers coach. He's the guy who's going to fix your receivers. And if your receivers aren't getting better, then then you make the change. I think that that is something that he has learned. And I think that that is a point of emphasis for him. I think, I'm not sure if he's like a list guy. I'm not sure if he's somebody who, when he got the job at Colorado, he, he spent a night just writing down a list of how he was going to do his job. You know, number one, I'm going to let my coaches do their job. I'm going to stay out of their business. Number two, I'm going to what? Maybe, maybe not. 
But I do think that if he did make a list, that was right up there toward the top. Um, and I th- for good reason. You know, you talk about in like science class growing up, where it's like if you're doing an experiment, then you can only change one thing. Because if you change multiple things, then you don't really learn anything. And I'm about to at 12 in the morning, 12 at night, figure out a science experiment example. But like, if you're, let's just say you're boiling something and you've got a pot and you put water in it and you put three other liquids in it that are different things. Let's call them milk. Let's call them orange juice uh, and beer. And you boil it and you're like, okay, how long does it take for this combination to, to boil? And then you, you do it and you time it and whatever. And you're like, how does that compare to, like, what happens? Does milk make it more or less boilable? And you take out the milk and you take out something else. And it's like, well, the other thing could be a problem too. And so when you're hands off with the coaching staff, this is a weird example. I need to stop talking, but it's whatever. Um, when you're hands off with the coaching staff and just say, Darren Cheverini, go do what you need to do then you can just evaluate the results and say this is what happened. And when you make a change at our offensive line coach, then that piece is added to the equation. You say, okay, this is what he did in that circumstance. This is what, or here's what Chev did in the first circumstance and the second circumstance. Now we have this piece. And it does always become complicated because there's so many pieces in football because it is the most interconnected of all the sports. You know, you need a good quarterback. You need a good line. You need, and the growth of these positions will change things. But I don't think he wants to insert himself. And I don't think Carl wants to say, here's what we're going to do. We are going to run two tight ends, and we're going to run power runs behind the tight ends and counter runs off of them, and we're going to run a few screen passes. Whatever he wants to do to build. I, I think that he thinks, if I go in there and say, we're doing this, then at the end of the season, I'm not going to have a true evaluation on Darren Cheverini because I'm I have inserted myself in there. So I think that that's how he thinks, and I could be totally wrong, but I do think that there's other areas in, in kind of the more everything else, everything that isn't on the field, where I do think he's probably a, a micromanager would be a good way to put it. And I don't know, I'm. Again, it's just so easy to put a coach into a box, good or bad. And it's true of anything, you know, whether it's foods or vacations or whatever. It's so easy to put things into good or bad. And I honestly think that maybe there's a middle bin. And if you're Colorado right now, you look at it and say four and eight, bad. Five and seven, middle bin. Bowl game, good bin. And then that's why this week is kind of so important because I think there's a lot of people who would see it that way. I don't think there's many people who expect Colorado to win. I'm not one of them for sure. I think they're going to lose. I see I see what the path is. There is a path, um, but it's a narrow one. Um, but I think that that's why this is so big for Carl because I think that he kind of gets put in that bin with everything else, even though, you know, it always is so complicated. And... Maybe maybe that's the one thing. I've said this a few times, but if there's one thing you take away, there's a lot at play when it comes to Colorado and Carl Durrell in particular. You know, you look at the recruiting and say, Rivals says it stinks, but do you trust Rivals or do you trust this coaching staff? 
And I think the general consensus from CU fans is going to be, we trust rivals on this one. <laughs> rivals has a history of, of getting these things right. And we don't know anything about Carl Durrell and Chris Wilson and the, the guys that they pull from under these rocks who might turn out to be really good football players. But you just look at it and say, hmm, feels like the Mitch Rodrigue thing. Feels like you're finding some of these low three stars the same place you found Mitch Rodrigue and you're getting the same reactions. But at the same time, you just got to see how it plays out. Didn't work out with Mitch Rodrigue. Worked out with Trevor Woods and with Kalen Moore and Penry and Robinson been impressive. Jaylee Stacks, not so much. But, you know, he was Mel Tucker's guy. This was this is his second year now that I think of it. But, um, yeah. I mean, that's just the recruiting part. You know, you have to factor in there's a lack of financial support. There's a lack of overall support from the university. And, again, you, you want to find somebody who can win here. Can Carl be that guy? I still say the only answer you can have is it's too soon to say. And typically when people say it's too soon to pass judgment, they then say, but things are trending the wrong way. It's like you you got to be hands-off. you got to let him do his thing until it's time to pull the trigger. That's where, you know, Rick George, it's kind of the same thing, where if you're starting to lean over Carl's shoulder and say, hey, do things this way, do things this way, do things this way, that's be kind of the same as Carl leaning in over Chev's shoulder and saying, hey, I need you to call this play right here. Hey, my turn. I'm going to call this play right now. I'm going to call this play right now. Because if you start saying, ah, third downs, I'll take over, you just don't see what Derek Cheverini does. And if Rick George starts leaning doing things this way, then you don't see what Carl Durrell does. And that's what this all is, just figuring out who works and who doesn't. You can't read too much into the early results. Can't read too much into the early results. All right, what does this say? I haven't looked. One fifteen, Hour and 15 minutes. I guess that'll do it for today. Those are just a bunch of thoughts on all of this. Um, be back tomorrow which is Wednesday. I'm going to see if Matt McChesney can come on. We haven't heard from him in a while. Uh, he's just been crazy busy and has had a whole bunch of life things. Um, typically, like I don't share them, but I know that one of them was locking his keys in the car. And it turned out to be a real adventure. And so last week that was what happened, but we'll, we'll see if that, if we can get them on, if not Wednesday, then Thursday, regardless, we'll be talking about this game. We'll be talking about some of these players, what we want to see. Um, and then uh, Friday, obviously we'll have a post game after the game. Uh, Saturday will be off, but Sunday the buffs play Stanford first conference game for basketball. I'll be up in Boulder for that one. Um, and I think the plan is to have a post game. It depends on what else is going on, but we plan to have a post game after that game wraps up. Um, and then next week, I guess the UCLA game on Wednesday is huge. Gonzaga, I was going to record this podcast during my basketball watching time, but Gonzaga was playing UCLA, which was a blowout, and the Nuggets were playing Portland. I was like, well, I'll just wait till after. Bad decision. Um, but yeah, between, between those big games, I think you've got Tennessee right after that on Saturday. So you've got Stanford Sunday, UCLA Wednesday, Tennessee, which is ranked number 15 right now, I believe, on Saturday. We're going to fit some football talk in there too, though, um, because it's going to be important to wrap things up, kind of put a bow on this season, and then start working our way through this offseason, seeing who transfers. We didn't even talk about the Levante Chenault transfer today, damn it. 
Um, I mean, I think you guys, I think we basically all have the same opinion. Um, it really sucks what happened with Levante here. It really, really, really sucks. Um, he's an incredibly talented kid. He's, I mean, he's fast and he's tall, and that's why he was a four-star. Um, I think he was a four-star, right? Yeah, he's got to be. Um, but he's fast and he's tall and he's strong and he's big. He's not as big as Visca, but I think he has the potential to be an NFL receiver. He he has all the tools that you could want. He's he's more of your prototypical type, you know, being as big as he is, but not built like a house like Visca, more of a lanky, long type of guy. That's that's what you want to be. It's what you want it to be. Um, he, he doesn't have the rice name, but the Chenault name is a pretty good one to have. And and that's something that will help him get a shot in the NFL. Um, there's, there's a lot of things that are working in Levante Chenault's favor. And I hope he takes advantage of them because he didn't do that at Colorado. And again, it just sucks. And there's really no other way to put it. It just sucks. And it sucks for... For Levante, obviously, more than anybody, that things didn't work out. Um, it sucks for Brendan Lewis that, that it didn't work out because that would have been potentially his top weapon this season. You know, I, I did say coming into the season, I think it's Levante number one, and then you've got Brendan and Dimitri behind him. Obviously, it's not how things played out. Um, it, it sucks for Darren Cheverini. I mean, we, we talk about what we say. They're, they're third from last in the country in terms of yards per game. Well, they're .1 yard out of fourth from last. Levante Chenault is, is worth at least .1 yard per game to this team. And he would have been this season. And now is the difference between third and fourth, the difference between Darren Cheverini keeping his job and not? Probably not. Is 10th? Is 15th? Is 20th? I don't know, but but I do know that if Levante Chenault was playing football this season, the numbers are better, and that's good for Cheverini. The offense passes the eye test better, and that's good for Darren Cheverini. So it sucks for him, too. Um, it sucks for Carl Durrell, obviously. It just really, really sucks for everybody that Levante Chenault struggled with the things he struggled with and made made the decisions that he made. You wish him the best. Um, but you also kind of wonder where he does go, right? Because, honest, the, I can't say nothing would surprise me. There, there are destinations that would surprise me. If he goes to Bama, he goes to Ohio State, he goes, something like that would surprise me. Um, but if he winds up at USC, you could see how that would happen, right? Because he's a talented guy. And he has a couple of highlights to put out there. Um, he has the Chenault name. He has those things they're working at. If he goes to Juco because of the struggles that he's had, I mean, you wouldn't be surprised by that either. If he winds up playing FCS ball, maybe you're a little bit surprised. You think he'd probably find somewhere G5, maybe? But yeah, I mean, if I had to take a guess, I'd say, mm, I think I don't. I think SMU is just a little too big. Maybe UTSA, University of Texas San Antonio, um, or El Paso, something like that. I, I I'd expect to see him go to Texas, 
I'd expect it to be one of these G5 teams. Um, but again, if he winds up being power five, you see why somebody would take that risk. You know, Colorado brought in Antonio Alfano, and there were more red flags there than there are here. Um, you could also absolutely see him Juco. But whatever, it is going to be fun. Not fun. It's going to be interesting to see what happens with Levante. And you hope that things go well for him. And if things do go well for him, it's never going to feel good for Colorado. Or it's, I, I can't even say that. There's going to be a piece of it that really stings if he winds up being an NFL football player. Which is, if he buckled down and decided that's what I'm going to do with my life, he could make it happen. So, <sighs> there's there's all that. There's all that. And that'll do it for today. Uh, big week. Big week. Uh, 